as, um, as our chairman has said tonight, what we're going to look at is um, it's meant to be an open forum on prophecy. So if we run for an hour, I thought if I spoke for 55 minutes, I'd be left with very little time to answer questions, but I won't do quite that. Can I just preface my remarks by saying um, when we get to the question stage, I don't profess to be an expert on all matters prophetical. I don't profess to have studied all parts of the prophetical word because I certainly haven't, although I've had a look at some uh, things. If I don't know the answer, I'm not going to pretend I do and I'll tell you that I don't know. Um, because obviously we could get involved in lots of technical things here um, which may in fact not prove useful for the, uh, for the whole group anyway. So I'm going to try and speak very much at conceptual level tonight and I hope that you will find that helpful uh, and that maybe that may help to frame some of the questions that you might come up with. So what I'm going to do is... Um, this was sort of partly in the context of a review, if you like, of, of uh, other views on prophecy that we do know have been in the Brotherhood for a while and uh, I have found this particular approach to be helpful in terms of analysing why we have the view that we do have and the scriptural basis for it. And for me, having discovered this, not that I'm saying I've discovered anything new, maybe I should say having rediscovered it or reaffirmed it, for me anyway, it's been a very helpful way of then benchmarking other prophetical ideas and I test it against this particular framework um, that I'm going to talk about tonight. So let's start with the beginning. I believe that the Bible, and I'm going to start with some obvious things that you hopefully will agree with, I believe that the Bible is one consistent and harmonious whole. We all say this as Christadelphians. We say that the message of the Bible is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. You know, I wonder if we realise just how consistent it is and whether we really do understand the absolute consistency of the book. Because as more than one person has said, the Bible is not history. The Bible is selective history. The Bible is not even about the unfolding history of mankind. The Bible is about the unfolding history of God's purpose with mankind. And without reference to God's purpose and God's plan, there's absolutely no reason for the book, is there? There's no earthly reason why we should have anything of the history of man recorded unless in some way it relates to the outworking of the Father's purpose. So this is predicated upon our understanding that the Father is supreme, that the God whom we worship is truly the centre of the universe, that all things revolve around the Father and the supremacy of his purpose and that one day it will be accomplished. And that everything related to his dealings with man are so that ultimately the Father's purpose can be fulfilled in the earth. Now we know this, don't we? We understand that that's, if you like, a fundamental of our understanding as Christadelphians. The supremacy of God and that everything revolves around the supremacy of the Father and his purpose. All our lives, brothers and sisters, we live in a world of humanism that shrieks to us how desperately important man is. And of course man is actually supremely unimportant. Not that the Father doesn't care for us, not that the Father doesn't wish us to be his children, but that outside of his purpose there is nothing. There is absolutely nothing at all. Now, let's just think then about how the Bible unfolds itself because to me, the story of the Bible is exceedingly simple. 
The Bible begins with man having been brought into the earth by the creative power of God and only shortly does the record commence that then man has vaunted his own will and his own mind and his own thinking against the divine purpose. Within the space of but a few chapters in Genesis, God having set forth the greatness of his purpose in creation, man has already begun to vaunt his own ways in opposition to God. And I believe that if you were to ask yourself honestly, what's the Bible all about? I think it's about two lines. And those lines are coloured blue and red to symbolise that which is of the truth and holy and clean and of the Father and that which is of the flesh and relates to the thinking of man. And from almost the moment that the divine record begins, that conflict is going to begin, isn't it? And if you to say to yourself, brothers and sisters and young people, what's the story of the Bible? Isn't it the story of the conflict between those two colours down two times? Isn't that the primeval story of the whole record? Until finally God says that his way will triumph and man will finally be overthrown and the purpose of God will be seen in all the earth as the waters do cover the sea and the Bible is the story of that unfolding story. It's the story of a story. And to me, that's the essence of what the Bible record's all about. And that's why it's selective history, because God's not the slightest bit interested in telling us about this or that or anything else relative to the purpose of man other than how it relates to that story of conflict between the two sides. Now, let me just develop this, this theme, therefore, a little further for you tonight. Look, I'll tell you what, this is marvellous once you start to see it. Now, look at this. Here's the divine record. I think the Bible tells us itself. The Bible furnishes its own evidence that, that this is how we ought to understand the Scriptures. So here are some thoughts from Genesis. Nothing particularly profound here, but there's some thoughts. Genesis chapter 2, the marriage of the first Adam to the first Eve. The most wonderful moment up to that point in the history of the world. And by the way, I think the most beautiful woman that the world has probably ever seen. The last and the fairest of God's creation. Because we know that in the bringing together of the marriage of the first Adam and the first Eve, there was going to be symbolised this great marriage which was to come. And yet shortly after the story of that, Genesis 3 says that the serpent is going to be loosed upon the earth, as it were, which was going to deceive. It would begin by deceiving one person. And yet from that first deception of the, serpent, of the serpent power in the earth, there would be the beginning of the deception of all the world. And as a result of that process and of man moving away from the standards and the principles and the goodness and the teaching of God, we have the result of the sentence of death being introduced and the sorrow of death is first experienced, first tasted by our parents in Genesis 3 verse 19. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 tells us that the way to the tree of life was barred as the record says and now lest he put forth his hand and take and eat of the tree of life therefore Yahweh Elohim drove forth the man from the garden and the way to the tree of life was barred up until some future time. Now, now do you all agree with that? Is that a fair summation of those thoughts from Genesis? I don't think I've done anything that's particularly tricky here but now look at this. Just stop and think about this. Look at the sheer power of this. 
book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. The marriage of the last Adam. His wife hath made herself ready. And there is the triumphant conclusion of that which begins in Genesis is finally now going to be brought to an end in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, the binding of the serpent that deceives. And Revelation 20 says there that they're old serpent. Why is it an old serpent? Because it began in Genesis and it's still alive in Revelation. But finally, says the book of Revelation, the old serpent is bound that it should no longer deceive the world. It began in Genesis, brothers and sisters, deceiving just one person. It ends so that it's restrained that it might no longer deceive the world. This is the overturning and the reversal of everything that began in Genesis. Revelation 21 verse 4 says that when that glorious and blessed time shall be, it says that, that even death shall finally be removed. That which was introduced in Genesis shall be taken away in the book of Revelation. And finally, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14 says that the promise to those who are faithful to the end is that the way of the tree of life will be opened. It was closed in Genesis. It shall be opened in the book of Revelation. Now you see, to me there's something marvellous about that because it tells us that the whole of the Bible record is bound together as one whole, one sequential story. There's, there's a great theme here being outworked. Now, I've lost count, by the way, brothers and sisters, and I'm sure you have too, of the number of things, the number of divine principles that begin in the book of Genesis that are finally found out in the book of Revelation. Tremendous number of things that begin in the book of Genesis that find their conclusion in the book of, of Revelation. I think God's telling us something. I think God says that's how you're meant to read the book. The book of, of the Bible is not simply a disparate collection of of folk tales, it's the theme of God. And the theme is that all things that began in Genesis will finally reach their triumphant conclusion in the book of Revelation when God's purpose is, is finally allowed to triumph in the earth. So, now let's have a look at the same story again and take ourselves through the Bible record and tell me if you think that this is not what the Bible's all about, because I think it is. So, let me cover it up again. You see, from the moment that record in Genesis begins, it starts with God's plan and man says, no, I want to do it my way. And the controversy begins that will not be resolved until the end of all time. Now, this is what the Bible says. The Bible talks about two seeds. The Bible talks about two ways. The Bible talks about two women. The Bible talks about two sons. The Bible talks about two trees. The Bible talks about two mountains. The Bible talks about two houses. The Bible talks about two masters. The Bible talks about two cities. The Bible talks about two communities. You see, I think this is the great overwhelming theme of the Bible record is the conflict between these two, these two ways, these two seeds, these two women these two cities, they're there always. All down through time, you've got the red and the blue line. Once those two lines have begun in the book of the Bible, they will always be there. I think that's absolutely overwhelming. 
If you wanted to see a, a central theme of the Bible, here it is. It's everywhere. It's in the book of Proverbs. It's in the book of Genesis. It's in the words of the prophets. It's in the Gospels. It's in the epistles. It's in the story of the kings. There's pages and pages and pages of references to this idea of the controversy between those two ways down through time. Do you want to see that expressed in a slightly different way? The Bible speaks about the spirit versus flesh, about God versus man, about truth versus error, about that which is above versus that which is beneath, about the holy versus the unholy, about that which is wise versus that which is foolish, about righteousness versus that which is sin, about light as opposed to darkness, about good as contrasted with evil, about life as opposed to death. You see, these are the two ways, aren't they? These are the two ways down through time. They're always there. I put it to you, brothers and sisters, you will not find a more pervasive theme in the Bible. This is the big one. This is the great cause celebre of the Bible record. This is the great raison d'etre of the existence of man down through time until he finally learns to submit joyfully and absolutely to divine principles so that all the earth can be filled with God's glory. I don't think that there is a greater theme than this one. If there is, I haven't seen it. This is all pervasive. The whole of the Bible record is full of the story of these two ways coming down through time. And you see, where does that begin? Where do the two seeds start? They begin in the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, and that's exactly where we would expect them to, to begin. And once they've begun, then there they are. Now, you see, look, this is the continuous theme of Scripture, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. The one represents the thinking of the flesh, the other represents the thinking of the spirit. The one represents the darkness of error. The other represents the light of the truth. They're always there. These two are brought, the one against the other, time after time after time after time. And of course we understand, by the way, as far as the truth is concerned, that, you see, when we come into the truth through the waters of baptism, we become constitutionally the seed of the woman. Or we don't stop thinking fleshly thoughts. We don't eliminate sin from our lives. We don't become suddenly righteous and holy, but we do become part of the community of the saints that are described as the seed of the woman. And from then on, our responsibility is to our very best ability to think and act differently, to be those who are motivated by divine principles. And God says, and I've always felt, felt that this is such a powerful thing, you know, brothers and sisters, God says, in fact, this is more than powerful, it's spooky. God says there has only ever been two ways, two seeds. You better choose because there is only two. There's nothing in between. There's no halfway house. There's no parcel seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. There's no mixing of worldly and fleshly things. That's not how the Bible presents the story. The Bible says it's light or dark, it's life or death, it's good or evil, it's the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent and God calls upon us to make our decision as to which group we might stand with. He desires that we should all respond to him and walk in his ways and this theme therefore is continuous down through the scriptural record. So many of the stories of the people in the divine record are there that we might see 
the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in different characteristics and in different aspects of their life. So, is that a continuous theme? Yes, I think it is. So those two seeds and those two ways and those two groups of people were consolidated into two cities. Now you all know the two cities. The two cities are Babylon and Israel. And they represent, in political form if you like, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman crystallised into two rival powers. Now look, brothers and sisters, you might have heard of this before, but I, I want to show you. I want to show you tonight that that really is so. Alright, let's taste and see. Now have a look. Um, Genesis chapter 10. So let's, let's just, I'm going to walk you through some scriptures so that you feel again the sheer simple power of this idea. Because look, I think this is the key, you see. Now in Genesis chapter 10, we're told in verse 8, the record says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before Yahweh. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So here at the, at the beginning of time, in the first book of the Bible, surprise, surprise, in the book of Genesis we're told, of the kingship of the seed of the serpent and the champion of that system was a man called Nimrod and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Babel or Babylon was of course the beginning of the kingdom of men not the kingdom of God. And now come over three chapters. Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14 and in verse 17 it says, The king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham after his return from the slaughter of Kedolaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the Most High God. So here at the same time as it were in the Genesis record, we're told of two rival kings. Nimrod, who's the king priest of Babylon, and by the way he was, he was a king priest, because the whole Babylonian system was founded upon the fact that it was a counterfeit of the real. And at a place called Salem, there is a man called Melchizedek, who's the priest of the true system of God. Where's Salem, by the way? Salem is Jerusalem, isn't it? Salem is the old name for Jerusalem. So here at the very beginning of time we've got two kings presiding over two cities but also over two systems of worship. The one is Babylon and the other is Israel and where does that story begin? Book of Genesis, right at the start. Um, yes, Yes, I, I, I understand. I'm using the term Israel on purpose, which you'll understand when I come a little bit later into the, into the text. So yes, I'm using the words Israel and Jerusalem as, as proxy ideas for each other here. Yes. Uh, in other words, we could be, you, you could say Babylon or Jerusalem or you could say Babylon or Israel. The two ideas are effectively the same because the Jerusalem community and the Israel community both stand for the seed of the woman down through scriptural time. And I'll, I'll come to that shortly. So, 
Isaiah 47 verse 1, anyone know what Isaiah 47 verse 1 says? Isaiah 47 verse 1 talks about the daughter of Babylon. Do you know, do you know what Isaiah 37 verse 22 does? Isaiah 37 verse 22 talks about the daughter of the virgin daughter of Zion. Virgin daughter of Babylon, virgin daughter of Zion. The two terms or the two phrases are used in juxtaposition, the one against the other. Now have a look at this. This is a very good one. Have a look at... Um, now, um, Jeremiah chapter 51. Now, we need to get two quotations. Let me give you both. So, in the left hand you need Isaiah chapter 2 and in the right hand you need Jeremiah chapter 51. <coughs> so, Jeremiah 51 in the right hand and Isaiah chapter 2 in the left hand. Now, do you remember this famous phrase in Isaiah 2 and verse 2? Concerning the future of Jerusalem in the age to come. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and I'm just going to give this the right emphasis and all nations shall flow unto it. You get that sense of the supremacy of Jerusalem here. All nations shall flow unto it. Now have a look at Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 44. And I will punish Bel in Babylon and I will bring forth out of his mouth that which he has swallowed up and the nations shall not flow together anymore unto him. Yea, the wall of Babylon shall fall. You see that word flow together? That's the very same word in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2. So of Babylon it says that the nations will no longer flow unto Babylon. So where will they flow? Isaiah 2 says they'll flow to Jerusalem because these two cities are in rivalry. These two cities are set off the one against the other in the divine record. They represent the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in their religious communities, in their cityhood as it were. So you've got the, the, the contrast of those phrases. What about this one here? I suppose I'd better make reference to this since um, we did take it as the reading. Now, Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Do you notice how that those two ideas are, are found in Psalm 137 as well? Because you see the same psalm written by some of the singers, I believe, in Babylon, they said concerning Jerusalem in verse 5, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem... Let my right hand forget her coming. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. So the spirit of the psalmist is to prefer Jerusalem above all others 
And then verse 8 says, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed? Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. So in the breathings of the same psalm, there is those who set their heart's affection on Jerusalem, on Zion, and those who also look to the overthrow and the absolute destruction of Babylon. Why should these two things be brought together in the psalm? Because these are the two ways. These are the two seeds. And I believe that those that wrote the psalm were particularly imbued with that notion at that time for the simple reason, brothers and sisters, that they were in the very centre of the seed of the serpent at the time. They were in captivity in Babylon. Now, let's just come to the last one then. Revelation chapter 18. So come to Revelation chapter 18 now because now we've come to the, the last book of the Bible and the point that I'm making here is this is obviously deliberate. This is not unintentional. This is the way that the Bible record unfolds for us. So in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 21 it says, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So the book of Revelation tells us of the final and absolute overthrow of the city of Babylon and all that that stands for, all that it has ever stood for. And it's described as that great city. Now come and have a look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10. And whereas one great city is flung down into the depths of the earth, Instead, concerning this other city in Revelation 21 and verse 10, it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The one is flung into the depths of the earth. The other comes from heaven above. The one is the great city of Babylon. The other is the great city of Jerusalem. Now, can you see what we're saying here, brothers and sisters, is that this conflict between these two rival systems, which only represents the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, begins in Genesis and is still there in Revelation. I don't think that's unintentional. I think God is saying that is the story. That is the outworking of my purpose. Now, let me just take you one stage further with that and then we can, then we can open for... Uh, some discussions <coughs> because I think that there's, there's just one little stage further that might help in terms of our understanding of, of how that has actually worked through time and by the way it's only when you come to this particular overhead that you might see why I've used the word Israel rather than Jerusalem although Jerusalem obviously would have been a perfectly acceptable title on the previous overhead well here it is here so I think that what actually has happened, if you imagine those lines to be the timeline of, of man's history of 6,000 years, what's happened is that the Old Testament record presents to us a Babylon and an Israel in conflict. Now, you notice that we come down at this stage here and there's obviously a transitional period, a period of change. Does anyone 
like to hazard a guess as to what the period of transition might be approximately. I should just hasten to add that it's not chronological in terms of, I don't, think, I don't think that this period of change is necessarily sitting at quite the right place in terms of a timeline. It's purely conceptually uh, put here. But what do you think that the moment of great transition was? Well, let me just... Yeah, well no, not necessarily. So let, let me finish off the overhead and then we'll talk about the transition period. Isn't there a Babylon 2? And an Israel 2? That's right. Now, let's just test this. Is that still Israel, by the way? And the answer is you... Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Um, because Christadelphians don't bet. But, yes. And... Uh, you know, I've got uh, a whole bunch of references here to show that Israel is a term that is representative of itself of the seed of the woman and had to always embrace the Gentiles from the days of Abraham it embraced the Gentiles. And the reason why I stress that is because I think that even in the Brotherhood some of the prophetical viewpoints would say that, that the saints of today have got nothing to do with Israel. I think that's preposterous. Of course we're part of Israel. That's the story of the olive tree, isn't it, of, of, of Romans chapter 11. Now, is there a Babylon too? And the answer is, well, yes, there is, isn't there? Because the Babylon of Revelation is not the same as the Babylon of Genesis. There's been a change, hasn't there, at some stage down through time, even as far as Babylon is concerned. And yet the story's the same. You see my point? Old Babylon might have gone and new Babylon might have come, but the spirit's the same and the attitude's the same. And in fact, Babylon II is going, to, is going to take every single practice and theme of Babylon I and, and work that into the system that Babylon II will represent. And Israel II is going to inherit the spirit, the true spirit and the principles of, of Israel I. And the story is going to carry on, but there's going to be two stages to the story, is there not? And of course we know that coming down this line, that Israel 1 is going to be rejoined with Israel 2 at the time of the end. And so all Israel shall be saved, says Romans 11, when natural Israel is grafted back into their own olive tree. So, now what do you think the period of transition was? Yes, I think it's the time of Christ, approximately the time of Christ. And what's really interesting is that about the years either side of the time of Christ marks the historical overthrow of Babylon as a power but in that same period of time the spirit of Babylon had migrated to Babylon the second and in that same period of time of a hundred years either side of Christ Israel as a nation of course had gone into captivity and its nationhood had been overthrown but the ecclesia had already been established and the story of Israel too had begun. Now there's nothing profound brothers and sisters is there about what I've said here but I believe that this is a framework in which you'll find that the whole concept of Bible prophecy now I think fits comfortably and properly because I think that this is rooted in the very fundamental teaching of the Bible itself concerning God's purpose with mankind and the supremacy of that purpose over man's thinking and man's ways. And I think that if we understand that framework that you'll find that there are many things in terms of new prophetical interpretations where you'll immediately see, well, they don't fit because they don't actually comply with that theme and yet we're, well, I hope that you're happy, that theme is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. So, here in the lesson, 
and uh, uh, now open for questions and, uh, and comments. And if I don't know the answer, I'll try and find someone in the audience who does. Any questions at all? Okay, so so you want to, that's a specific question. Let's look at it in this context. The mark of the beast can only be the mark of Babylon. Because what we're saying here, let me just go back a step. If this is true, then we expect that whatever the beast is down through time will be consistent with that story. It won't be a dramatically different thing. Uh, for example, what's the logic of saying, well, this is what God's done, but at the time of the end, what you do is you throw all that away. It really doesn't matter what's happened in the past. Something entirely different, something entirely unrelated to everything God's done in the past may now, may, may now arise, and the real story at the time of the end may be a totally different one to what we're looking for. I don't see that that's the thrust of Scripture. So the mark of the beast, um, what's the mark of the beast? Um, uh, you tell me what you think the mark of the beast is. Let's start with the beast. Who's the beast? All right, before we can determine the mark of the beast, we need to determine the beast. Who's the beast? Yes. 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 A mark. Yes. The mark of the mark. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Beware the mark of the of the French. Yes. So, so the the mark of the beast. Well, is the is the beast Rome? And the answer is, well, we believe, I believe that it's Rome. And why do I believe it's Rome? Because I believe that Rome is Babylon the second and that Babylon the second is absolutely a fulfilment of the spirit of Babylon the first, that the story has never changed. And that therefore if Rome is the beast, then the mark of the beast is interpreted in the light of, of the beast being associated with the papacy. Just as a matter of interest, hands up those who have read Alexander Hislop's two Babylons, cover to cover. One, two, three, four. Um, hands up those that have got Alexander Hislop's two Babylons, slightly more. Look, you should read it because one of the worrying things, you know, I think about prophecy is, is that the worst thing you can do is to have never done any reading or any thinking because we're all very susceptible to new thoughts and new ideas and if we've got no foundations, we'll be moved quite quickly, won't we? You see, if someone comes along and says, well, look, I could give you a really convincing argument to show you that in Chinese history, the symbol of the red dragon is a constant symbol for China and I could put up a fantastic case to prove to you that the great red dragon of Revelation 12 is China. And you know what? Some people would say, wow, that's good. Now, why would that be wrong? And the answer is because it's utterly unrelated to this continuous purpose down through time. got nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's right out of, the, out of left field, isn't it? It's a novel idea and it's a, it's no doubt a very interesting one, but it's utterly unrelated to the purpose of God as it seems to be unfolded in the scriptural record. Why would we suddenly want to focus on China out of the blue? So immediately you would be suspicious of that idea because it doesn't seem to be consistent with these great fundamental themes and ideas. 
So, Alexander Hislop's The Two Babylons is, is a book that documents the worship of ancient Babylon in so much detail that you'll be astounded and appalled. The garments the priest wears, the confession box they use, the doctrine of the Trinity, the worship of the mother and the child, you name it, it just goes on and on and on and then he shows how that Rome is exactly the counterpart of that item by item by item by item. You know, if you read the book and then said, I don't believe that, I'd probably say you didn't read the book. Because it's just, it's just such an enormous mass of evidence to show you that Rome is Babylon 2. Totally and absolutely. It's, it's convincing. Yes? Yeah, sure. So again, an interesting contrast between the two because there's two different modes of thinking because ultimately this is only the thinking of the flesh enthroned in a system, the thinking of the spirit found within a community. That's right. Yep. Yes. Yes. Do they? Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yes, exactly. So just for benefit of the tape, the comment made was that within the walls of the Vatican libraries there is a library particularly devoted to profane history worthwhile spending time in that because it documents within the walls of the Vatican itself the absolute correspondence of the papal system to ancient pagan rites that, definitely, that certainly go back to the time of Babylon. Okay, yes. Yes. <coughs> yes. Okay. So let's talk about the true Israel has been there from the beginning. The, uh, I think that's answered by the fact that the word Israel is there through all time. So it's always Israel, and Israel is a proxy term here. What I'm suggesting is that I believe that Israel itself is a proxy term for the seed of the woman. So, inasmuch as that is true, then yes, obviously the seed of the woman has been there down through time, and, and I, I believe that. 
The only reason for mentioning 1 and 2, by the way, is because we're told that at the time of, of Christ coming upon the earth, remember how Brother Thomas says in Elphus Israel, he says there's a difference between the gospel of the kingdom, the mystery of the gospel, and the fellowship of the mystery. Alright? I'll just run through those again. He says there's a difference between the gospel of the kingdom, the mystery of the gospel, and the fellowship of the mystery. The gospel of the kingdom is the fulfilment of the promises in a literal kingdom to be established on the earth. The mystery of the gospel is that entrance into the kingdom comes through remission of sins through faith in the blood of Christ. The fellowship of the mystery is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. And all we're really trying to show in this section is that this is the great epoch of Gentile believers. I'm only calling them Israel too in that sense because the great community that was founded at the time of the apostles was the beginning of a movement that took the truth into the Gentiles whereas the Jewish people as a national entity were about to be overthrown. So I'm only using it in that sense. But ultimately Israel is the seed of the woman down through time. Yes. <coughs> yes. Yes. That's right. Do you remember how in the book of Exodus chapter 19 it said that God had called them to be a chosen priest, a royal generation, a chosen priesthood to him? And that that same set of phrases, of course, is taken up in the first of Peter chapter 2 and applied to the believers of the New Testament era who are going to be Gentiles. This is Israel too, but they're still a chosen priesthood to God, yes. So the very language of Exodus about Israel originally is taken up and applied to the Gentiles in the New Testament record. I'd like to jump in and ask a question here. It's about something which we were discussing uh, uh, somebody and I were discussing earlier and it may relate back to something you've already referred to. Why are historical events like World War II, which didn't pinch on Israel, they had a lot to do with Israel, why are they not explicitly mentioned, do you think, in, in various prophecies? Um, can I... Give you Can I begin by asking a question? Right. Um, I mean, the obvious answer is we don't know, but let me give you an illustration of, of the same thing. If you come to Acts chapter 3, just by way of illustration, um, I guess the answer is because God has only recorded those things that he believes are relevant for our purposes. Now, do you remember that in Acts chapter 3 and verse 12, it says that when Peter saw it, he answered and said unto the people, ye men of Israel, and now he's going to begin the speech of Acts chapter 3. All right? So he starts the speech. Now, Acts chapter 4 verse 1 says that as they spake unto the people, so therefore he's still talking, Peter's still talking, he begins the speech in Acts 3 verse 12. By the way, how long do you think it would take to read from verse 12 to verse 26 of Acts 3? How long do you think in terms of actual physical time? 
three minutes. Right, Acts chapter 4 says verse 3, they laid hands on them, they were still talking when they came, they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day for it was now eventide. What, what hour is eventide? Eventide is six o'clock at night. When did Peter go into the temple? Acts chapter 3 verse 1 says he went in at the hour of prayer which was the ninth hour. What's the ninth hour? Three o'clock in the afternoon. So Peter went into the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon, healed the layman, stood up, began to speak and he spoke for something approximately like three hours. He was there from three o'clock until they finally laid hands on him at six. We've got three minutes of that talk. Why haven't we got three hours? It is a question. And the answer is because obviously what we do have is sufficient in terms of the knowledge of what Peter spoke on that day and because God's purpose... So remember, I suppose the answer is what I said earlier on because, because the Bible is not history, it's selective history and even our judgment as to what constitutes a mighty event in world history may be relatively minor from God's point of view. Uh, just one more example of that. Genesis chapter... Oh, this is a good one. Now, Genesis chapter 4, I've always liked this one. I think this is a splendid example of the same thing. This is selective history, you see. Now, in Genesis 4 verse 1 it says, and you'll all know this one. Genesis 4 verse 1, Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man. So we've got Adam and we've got Eve and we've got Cain. Verse 2, she bare again his brother Abel. So now we've got Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Verse 8, Cain slays Abel. So now Abel's dead, we've got Adam and Eve and Cain. And verse 16 says, Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and dwelt in the land of Nod and he knew his wife, verse 17. Where did she come from? Where did Cain's wife come from? The land of Nod. The land of Nod. A land favoured by many of us as nighttime approaches. Now, the thing is that, of course, you know what the answer to the question is? There could have been thousands of descendants of Adam by this time. There could have been several generations of Adam's descendants by this time. So here's the burning question. Why does Genesis 4 only tell us about Cain and Abel? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible's selective history. You know why it only talks about those two? Back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 had said, verse 15, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And the Bible promised there would be two different seeds, two different people with two different types of thinking, the thinking of the flesh and the thinking of the spirit. Genesis chapter 4 opens, God says, do you want to see those two seeds? I'll show you right now. Let me show you those two seeds in the form of these two sons. One manifests the thinking of the flesh, the other manifests the thinking of the spirit. And so the Bible is selective history. God's not interested in the rest of Adam and Eve's children because he's not telling us about Adam and Eve's family. He's telling us about the unfolding of his story, which is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. So the Bible is selective history. And therefore it doesn't include all sorts of things that we might consider important because obviously in the judgment of God it was not essential to the unfolding of his purpose or necessary for our salvation. Why did the image in Daniel believe in the cover of such a long period of 
Yes? Yeah, yeah, and, and to me, by the way, that's a terrific question because I think uh, I did try and answer that this morning uh, or this afternoon, however imperfectly because the answer is yes, there is a conundrum, isn't there? The legs are somewhat long in terms of history. 1,500 years, long legs. And yet the whole point is, and I, I don't know if you saw this, but I think this is beautiful, along comes Daniel, an old man greatly beloved in exile and receives the vision of beast 1, beast 2, beast 3 and beast 4 but he's only told about beast 4 and the fact that it's there till the time of the end. Along comes John who lives in the time of beast 4 and God says, and he's an old greatly beloved man in exile, God says, now I'm going to tell you about beast 4, stage 1, stage 2, stage 3, stage 4 and that mysterious long leg business of Daniel 2 is what's going to be telescoped out in the book of Revelation, isn't it? This is the, ba- this is the Babylon 2 era. By the way, just coming back a step, now Babylon 1, what were the four beasts? The head of gold? Um, did, Babylon, did the Babylonian Empire control the city of Babylon? Yes. Uh, chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persian Empire. Did the Medo-Persian Empire control the city of Babylon? Yes. Um, the Abelian thighs of brass, the Greek Empire... Did the Greeks ever control Babylon? Well, Alexander died there after a drinking bout, so he, yeah, he, he ran Babylon for a short while anyway. Yes. So, so did the Greeks control Babylon? Yes. Did the Roman power ever control Babylon? Yes. AD 135, Trajan took Babylon. And every one of the four powers of the four beasts of Daniel took the city, the literal city of Babylon. But by the time that fourth power had arrived, already the spirit of Babylon 1 was migrating to another place. Which, by the way, is a fulfilment of some other prophecies. So then it starts to get really interesting. Yes. Okay, good. Um, any other questions? Yes. Okay, multiple fulfilments. I suppose the answer to that is that our general view on prophecy always is that prophets never spoke in a vacuum and that there was often, therefore, perhaps an initial fulfilment in the prophet's own day. So the great prophecy about the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53 we know was fulfilled in the life of Hezekiah. And therefore there are many uh, initial fulfilments of many prophecies as well as latter-day fulfilments. We understand that. But my problem, my only difficulty with multiple fulfilments is where the multiple fulfilments start to smash all of this theme up so that we now have a multiple fulfilment in the future that's utterly unrelated to the story of the Bible in the past. I don't mind how many multiple fulfilments you want down that line. But they will all be part of a continuous story. I don't think God's story has ever changed. And I use the word continuous on purpose, of course, because it is related to a continuous historic interpretation of prophecy and I think that's utterly consistent with how the scripture presents itself. Genesis to Revelation is seen to be a continuous whole. So multiple fulfilments, yes, look, I, I think there is always room for that possibility because clearly that has been the case in a number of, in, in a number of instances. So, for instance, um, looking at the book of view it as the prophecy over a long period of time. Yes. The, the days and years. 
Yes. Right. Okay, you've moved on to a different subject slightly, which is time periods. So, shall I just talk about time periods for a minute? Okay. The, um, let me just go back to um, an earlier picture here because imagine that this is a timeline now of the, of the history of man. So, roughly we've got 6,000 years of history. So, you'll notice that the middle point, which is Christ, is not technically correct, is it? Because it should be about... 4,000 years and then in the last 2,000 we have the changeover to, uh, to Christ moving through into the New Testament era and, and, era and beyond. But if you'll just accept the, um, the slightly incorrect drawing of the picture and imagine that this is a, a 6,000 year sequence, um, just a couple of comments on, on the prophetical time periods. The first thing is that if you, can, if you see that the purpose of God is unfolded in a continuous story, and that therefore continuous unfolding of prophecy is consistent with that, you will automatically see the wisdom of day-for-year application of prophetical time periods. Because we've got 1260 years, 1290 years, 1335 years, 2520 years, 3430 years, 2300, and those time periods clearly all fit comfortably on a 6,000-year line. Not only do they fit comfortably, but they make excellent sense that down through time the purpose of those prophecies was to encourage the seed of the woman so that whenever the seed of the woman uh, were alive upon the earth there was something that they could see coming that told them that there was hope and that God's purpose was still at work in the earth. Now one of the things I feel very passionately about in um, in terms of Bible prophecy is that what you don't want is for people to say, well, you know, this might have happened in the past or whatever, but to then sort of um, throw out the past as if it never happened and that therefore um, it wasn't a fulfilment. This is a very old overhead, so I apologise for the age of it, but now you'll probably, you've probably seen this sort of thing before, the time period of the Roman beast. In the book of Revelation we're told that the Roman beast has power, the power to persecute for a period of 1260 days. So is it days or years? Well, historically it certainly appeared to work out in years because in BC 533, sorry, AD 533, Justinian declared the Bishop of Rome to be superior to all others and 1260 years later the French Revolution began to affect the papacy that its, that its power declined. In 549 the Pope received Justinian's special decree of Rome's authority and 1260 years later Napoleon took the territorial states of the papacy. In 590 Gregory became probably the most powerful pope of all and 1260 years later Pope Pius IX was driven into exile. In 608 Focus gave his decree as the, uh, concerning the, um, the, the, uh, the, the primacy of the Bishop of Rome and 1260 years later the papal power, at least its temporal power, came to an end. Now these are remarkable fulfilments. So you know what people say? People say, oh, well because the papacy didn't finish, the prophecy must be wrong. So you therefore forget about all of that and pretend it never happened. But it did happen. And it happened amazingly. 
And what you found was there was a period of dates that marked the build-up of the papacy and 1260 years later there was a set of definite steps marking the decline of the papacy. Not by the way that the beast or the papal system disappeared but its period of persecuting supremacy, I believe, had come to an end which is what the 1260 years is all about. It's not the length of the beast in total, it's the time period that was given to it that it might persecute. And although it's still alive in Revelation chapter 17, it's no longer talking about persecution. So, just coming back to this, uh, this particular chart again, if you believe in a continuous historic outpouring of God's purpose down through time, and therefore a continuous fulfilment of, of scripture, the day for the year principle, which by the way I think is utterly scriptural, is completely logical. Now the moment you adopt a futurist view of the book of Revelation, you can't accept a day for a year theory. You've got to say it's got to be taken as literal. You know why? Because if you're going to have the book of Revelation all happening from now on, we're now at the year AD 2000, do you really want another 1260 years to still be outworked? So people say, no, no, it's not, it's not 1260 years, it's 1260 literal days. And then they say, well, there could have been this long-term fulfilment in the past, but there'll be this short-term one in the future. Well, I've got a trouble with that in terms of consistency, um, because I think that whatever your rule of interpretation should be, it should be consistent. So let me give you some problems with turning them into literal days. Here's a couple of illustrations. So here's the first problem. What's the most famous time period, do you think? Ooh, well, I'll, I'll, well, I'll start with that. So, if prophetical time periods are all taken as literal calculations, then what we're left with is the following based upon a literal calculation then, a month of 30 days, which appears to be the, the basis of a scriptural month. So we've got 490 which relates to 16.33 months or 1.36 years. Can anyone tell me the significance of that? The specific significance of that time period? Right. Now we've got 1260. Now this is the favourite one. Everyone says three and a half years. Oh yes, we're going to have three and a half years of certain things happening at the time of the end. We've got this, we've got this literal days being outworked. Have we now? Well, let's just read on. 1290 days. Can anyone tell me the significance of 3.58 years? Or 3.71 years? Or 76.66 months? or seven years, or 9.52 years, which is, by the way, brother, this is brother, um, who's the brother that wrote Times and Seasons? This is brother W.H. Carter's view on the Jubilee years, that there, in fact, is a cycle of Jubilee years as well. And basically, if we take all of the time periods as literal, we've got from one year to ten years. So, therefore, what you're saying is this, that taken literally we're led to the conclusion that at least the last 2,000 years has been utterly bereft of prophetic guidance but that there is an explosion of prophetic events in the last 10 years out of 6,000 years of history. That's if you take the days literally. You can't just take the 1,260 days literally, you've got to take the lot literally if you're going to do it that way. Now you tell me, 
How would you like to speak to Brother Thomas or anyone else who's lived in the past and say, look, I'm sorry, you all lived in totally unimportant times. It was just us who got the last ten years. We got the lot. Everything happened in those ten years. Sorry about you, you just lived too early. I mean, the whole concept of prophecy is it was given for the comfort and encouragement of the saints down through time. So, the idea of of literal periods is not quite as simple as it sounds because I think that what happens is people do that to think they've solved some problems but in so doing they may create more problems than they've solved. Let me give you, um, let me give you another illustration of that. Oh yes, here it is here. So time periods, are they literal or symbolic? Well, whatever your rule of interpretation is, it's got to be consistent. If the key time of 1260 days is literal, then other times must also be taken literally. But this rule would create more difficulties than those it purports to solve. So now let me show you some problems with 1260 days literally. Revelation 8 verse 1. There was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Really? So this is so important that we've got to be given a prophecy about something that took place over 30 minutes. Is that logical? But if we're going to take the time periods literally through the record, then we must do so. Revelation 17 verse 12, These ten horns received power as kings for one hour. Not a long reign, one would think, if we're going to take the periods literally. Look, I know you might think this is amusing, but honestly I'm not trying to be amusing. I'm simply presenting the reality of of problems if you take a, a literal calculation. So, dead bodies lying unburied for three and a half days. Well, at least that's better than three and a half years, although the funny thing is that when you come to those who want to have literal days, they make three and a half days, on this particular occasion, three and a half years. They say, oh, this is a symbolic number. Well, no, it can't be. Either it's literal or it's not literal, but you can't start having it both ways. And granted that these bodies are dead, do we really need to know about what went on for these three and a half days of dead bodies? And what about this one? You know, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, we're told concerning the ecclesia of Smyrna, thou shalt have tribulation for ten days. Now, if the 1260 days are literal, so is the ten days. So, you're asking me to believe that we have this prophecy in the book of Revelation that it's crucial for us to know that this particular ecclesia had a problem for about a week. I'm not trying to belittle the persecution that they had, that they had a problem for about a week, and we've got to know about that. This is so vital, it's got to be in a prophecy. Really? Revelation 9 verse 5 says, There are tormentors with scorpion sting for five months. What a strange period. Not six months notice, not three, five months. Incredibly precise period of time. And what about this one in uh, Revelation 9 verse 15? It says that there are angels prepared to slay men and they're prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year. Oh, so here's a really good one. So you're telling me that these horsemen, these angelic horsemen, have to be prepared for a year and a month and a day right down to the last hour of their preparation. Amazing precision. Is that really what you think the prophecy is about? Now if you're going to take literal days, then you've got to take them all as literal and you've got to give a good convincing scriptural explanation of every one of those. Well, I haven't heard that explanation but I've heard some fantastic fulfilments of prophecy down through time for the encouragement of the saints 
on the basis of a day for a year interpretation, which I think is thoroughly sound. Yes, for one obvious reason. Because what we're saying is that the 1260 days is a symbolic period. They're all symbolic periods. And the thing about all of those prophetic periods is they are symbolised by a symbol that is appropriate for what the symbol is representing. Now, let me give you an example. The silence in heaven by the space of half an hour. Whatever time period that is, it sounds appropriate as a symbol. Dead bodies lying for three and a half days sounds appropriate. A wild beast ravaging for, for maybe 1260 days. All of the periods mentioned are appropriate to, to the symbols that are being used. Now, how would you symbolise Christ's reign? And by the way, it doesn't say a thousand days. It says a thousand years. So on that basis it would be 360,000 years worth of millennium if we were going to take the same interpretation. But this is the one thing that doesn't need any symbolism. It is a thousand years of literal reign. And I think it's described therefore literally in that way. Because, to, to, because imagine depicting the reign of Christ as a thousand days. Imagine if you said, well, he'll, he'll, that, that Christ will reign for a thousand days on the basis of a day for a year, year principle. But a thousand days sounds like a pathetic reign of a king. He's only managed to last for about three years. How does that show the glory of the kingship of Christ? The best way to describe it was a thousand years. Yes, because it doesn't call it. Yes, it is because it doesn't call it days. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. No. But to me, it is illogical to take some numbers literally and some numbers not literally. But my my answer to that is, and this is what I've been trying to say, is there are therefore problems, you know, whichever way you go from that point of view. Isn't there a reference in Daniel, by the way, to the thousand years added up another way? Yeah. What's the season and the time? I can't remember now. Yes. Yes. He took two three hundred and sixty and then added on the two eighty. Yeah, that's right. So let's just come back to it. The, you see, you let me just go back to this picture here. Why are we suggesting that a day for a year is a better general interpretation? Because it's consistent with that. And all I've tried to say tonight is, you know, if, if you only take this much, don't imagine that taking literal days will solve problems for you. It will create more problems than you will solve biblically. That was really the thrust of my point. 
But I believe that given that they are already symbolic days, we already know that they're symbolic days and that we're already dealing with symbolic periods, how might best the reign of Christ be, uh, be announced and the suggestion is that the best way, the only way to, to actually describe the reign of Christ for a thousand years was to call it a thousand years. It was very difficult to symbolise in any other way that would be appropriate for the decorum of the symbol. But the basic approach is consistent with everything else we've seen tonight, isn't it? About the, the flowing of God's purpose down through time. But the moment you take a view that says it's futurist, you actually can't have day for a year because you push everything out impossibly long. So you're obliged to take a literal day, uh, a day approach. Yes? So you're saying that you can't be a reason for applying the property Okay. Right. What I'm saying is this, and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting for a moment I've got all the answers on Bible numbers. What I am saying is that I believe that all of these periods are being outworked and that there will all be a final termination date to them all. I don't know what they are. But I believe that they will be termination dates of years, not days. Yes. Yes. And they also yes. have like, like a second fulfilment in a short period before the return of Christ. Yes. Now, is, is that a possibility or is it not a possibility? Um, I suppose it depends what we mean by possibility and where we're trying to get to with it. So if I come back to this, um, I, I would see, look at everything in the context of this. The trouble is I've multiplied my overheads so horrendously here that I've lost track of them. So, um, one must always be careful what one says. But maybe if I could say this, I'm comfortable with fulfilments that are in accordance with the spirit of that. I'm not comfortable with a latter-day fulfilment that tosses all that out and says none of that's happened. The man of sin, the beast system at the time of the end is um, something altogether different. Yes. A latter-day fulfilment that kept that to the letter. Um, I guess we would all look at it with a great deal of interest. Yes. So, look, I hope you all understand what I'm saying tonight because we talked about this this morning or this afternoon. There will be matters of outworking of prophecy that will be subject to debate. I, we know that. I'm talking here about a broad framework in which I think prophecy is consistent and consistently rooted in fundamental concepts of the Father and his purpose. And yet I think that helps. For example, if I can just give you one illustration, then we probably ought to close, Brother Chairman, um, the Arabs. That the great controversy at the time of the end is the Arabs versus the Jews. Two flaws. How do the Arabs be seen as the natural outworking of the spirit of Babylon and the seed of the serpent down through time? How do the Arabs how can the Arabs be seen as growing out of the head of the Roman beast? 
how the Arabs seen as the fulfilment of the spirit of Babylon, literally. Which particular three Arab nations do you think will collapse so that one new Arab nation might arise and which new Arab nation do you think that might be? The whole point is that we're not denying, see here's the point, you see all of these things become interesting distractions. No one would deny for a moment that there's been controversy between the Arab and the Jew and that there may have been some fulfilments of prophecy. What we're talking about though is that the great story of the time of the end? The answer is no, I don't think it is. I think that the Arabs versus the Jews is at best only part of the fact that they may throw in their lot with Babylon the second. Did the Arabs throw in their lot with Babylon the first? Yes, they did. They joined in the cause of hatred against Israel. But to suggest that Babylon versus the Jews is the great issue of the time of the end, I think ignores all of that. And here's the second flaw. Who says that it's Babylon versus the Jews? You see, the idea that it's Babylon versus the Jews is predicated on the assumption that God's purpose, and listen to this carefully, um, because I'm going to say it very carefully, that God's purpose revolves around natural Israel. I don't think that's true. I don't think God's purpose has ever revolved around natural Israel. I know that God's purpose has involved natural Israel and that natural Israel has been the quarry from whence God has quarried men and women for his purpose. But I think God's purpose has always revolved around the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is not the same as natural Israel. And yet a lot of modern viewpoints concerning prophecy are predicated on the theory that God's purpose revolves around the nation of Israel. I don't think that's ever been God's purpose. God's purpose is to enthrone himself upon the earth. And he's never going to do that ultimately with the nation. He does it with those out of the nation who think spiritually, who are the seed of the woman. And the purpose of the and by the way, if you think that God's purpose revolves around the nation of Israel, just consider this as a problem. Imagine that this is six thousand years. So God's purpose focuses on natural Israel, does it? So for the first two thousand years, there's no nation of Israel because Israel only starts at about BC um, two thousand. Then we come down for two thousand years with the history of Israel. Shortly after the death of Christ, the nation disappears again and for another 2,000 years we have no nation of Israel so that out of 6,000 years of man's history on the earth we have the history, uh, we, have, we have the nation of Israel nothing for the first 2,000 years, something for the second 2,000 years, nothing for the last 2,000 years and you tell me that God's purpose revolves around the nation of Israel? Well, why did we have the other 2,000 year periods? Why did God waste 6,000 years to cover only 2,000 years worth of stuff? with the nation of Israel. But if you think that God's purpose revolves around the seed of the woman, then you'll perfectly understand 6,000 years. And you'll also understand Israel's part of that, the crucial part of Israel in that. But you won't mistake the two. And you won't make the nation of Israel a proxy for God's people because it's only part of the story. And the real story goes back a lot further back in time than the nation of Israel, doesn't it? It begins in Genesis chapter 3. So to me, that framework is helpful, you see, in starting to measure other prophetical ideas and to see where, whether they do or don't fit that overall concept. Yes, there will be details to debate, but to me, I think that is scripturally sound.